Good morning. morning. You guys can do better than that. I've been here before. Good morning. morning. There you go. There you go. Um, It's really good to be here. Um, Carol and I feel very much at home here. Um, In fact, we have worked out sort of a routine when we drive from Mitchell. We come up 69 or 37 and we cut over. And uh, I'm not, I love donuts. We're really trying to be good. Um, but we always just pull right into Meyer before we cross the street and we get ourselves a nice, fresh, glazed donut. So let's pray now for forgiveness. <laughs> but it's really good to be here. Um, and uh, we love you guys. Um, we continually pray for you. And it's just awesome to see God at work in your midst. It really is. Because from a visitor's point of view, you know, we're not here every week. So we come a couple times a year, and this thing gets bigger and see new faces. So uh, it's wonderful to see God doing a great work here in Franklin. So um, I'm going to pray one more time and ask for God's help so that I stay out of his way. Let's pray one more time. God, thank you so very much for the worship that's already begun in this place today. And I pray, God, that I would simply be a conduit of your grace And that as we dive into your word this morning, it would continue to be both spoken and received with an attitude of worship. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would give hearts that are fertile for your word and that we would leave this place more in awe of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've had the privilege of being a little bit of an older guy, right? And uh, I was going to say, right, Gary? But we... We, we relate, not only on this, but yes, yeah, you got a couple of years on me. Um, but I've had the purview of walking with the Lord for 45 years, uh, uh, there, give or take, and uh, I've seen God save people in, in, in the various ministries we've been involved with, and I love to see that work of regeneration. I love to see that metamorphosis, that transformation that takes place when God truly brings somebody out of the darkness and places him in or her into his marvelous light. And I I love to see, if you will, we're going to talk about this today, the before and the after. Um, One of the things that came to mind as I was putting this message together was my father, My father died in 2004, and he came to Christ sort of late in life, but it was just absolutely awesome to see in him the before and the after, to see that change that took place in his life. And anybody that knew him was just blown away. I mean, you've got to understand that generation. That was what I call the John Wayne generation, right? And to see... This guy changed, and to see how different he was in the remaining 20 years of his life after he came to know Christ. As we look at this passage in Ephesians today um, that uh, Kevin just read for us, we see a real clear before and we see an after. Um, There's a very, very clear distinction. So I'm going to ask a question of all of you that I asked myself putting this message together, is there a clear before and after in your life? Can the people in your life say, wow, he used to be this way, she used to be this way, 
But they don't do that as much anymore. So keep that in mind so that this isn't just a theological exercise that you're thinking of maybe somebody else. We, we want to be able to hear and apply God's word to our own hearts first. So we start off in verse 1, chapter 2, if you have your Bibles. This would be the first slide. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked. Now, there are views out there that people are inherently good in and of themselves and by their nature and only need just a little help from God to clean up their act in order to make it to heaven. Yet Paul here, very clearly right at the onset of this chapter in verse 1, writes that we're not just sick in need of a little doctoring or really sick in needing of a hospitalization. No, it says very clearly that apart from Christ, we are dead spiritually, flatlined. And so all people in our natural estate, because we're dead, are unable to respond to God. Why? Because we're dead. Not just a little sick, not really, really sick, but apart from God, dead. Open to Romans 3. I know you've already all been through it, um, or it's up on the screen, I think. But Romans 3, let me get there. It's nice that you guys have already been here, so I don't have to park here and exegete the passage. But listen to our state apart from God. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then it goes on. So apart from God, no one is righteous, not one. Apart from God, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, no one does good, not even one. Ouch. And then you have the eight cannots of Scripture. I'm going to go through these very, very quickly. Apart from God and Him doing that work, we're dead. We've already established that. John 3, 3, we cannot see. 1 Corinthians 2.14, we cannot understand. We're not able. It, it's folly. We cannot please God, Romans 8.8. 8. Cannot hear, John 8.43. Cannot receive him, John 14.17. Cannot come to God, John 6.44. Cannot call out, 1 Corinthians 12.3. Cannot believe, John 12.39. So it's a pretty desperate state, right, apart from God. James Montgomery Boyce, one of my favorite, he's gone on to be with the Lord, writes this about this passage back in Ephesians. He writes this. The kind of death Paul is talking about here in Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2, is a strange one, one in which, although dead spiritually, the sinner nevertheless walks about quite actively in sin. He is dead toward God, though. But he is alive to all wickedness. And Paul uses strong, active words here. Although spiritually dead, the sinner follows the way of the world and the devil 
and spends his time gratifying the cravings of his sinful nature. You know, when I think about uh, some good brothers that I have that, that differ on these kinds of things, when we say that we're just sick in need of a little help, it's a 50-50 deal, we do our part, God's part, in terms of coming to know God, listen, we diminish the need for the cross. Do you all get that? I mean, if we, we could close in prayer right now. We don't want to diminish the need for the cross. But when we see that we're dead in our trespasses and sin, the cross is not just great, it is amazing. We don't want to diminish the cross. And as a result, number two, the next slide is, as a result, we're children of wrath. Look at verses two and three. Verses 2 and 3. In which you all once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, um, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's interesting when we look at verse few. Verse 2 about walking according to the course of the world, it really translates walking as a way of life. That was the way, hopefully, we all were. And no one's exempt, not even Paul. Paul includes himself in verse 3, and he goes on at the end of verse 3. And by the way, if you think you're out here, he said, and the rest of mankind. And so you've been in Romans, you get this. And, and, and so verse 2 and 3, we all walked according to the prince of the power of the air. And we all walked really according to our own agenda. And as a result, we're children of wrath. Ugh. Ouch. Now, wrath is not a often spoken of doctrine of the Bible in many churches today. It's not popular. But because, folks, God is just, he must punish sin. When you elect, when we elect a judge, right, you want a judge that's going to carry out and enforce the what? The law, Right? And when they don't do that, they're not being judicial. So, so God's wrath is very consistent with his nature. It's consistent in that he doesn't change his mind. He's not fickle like we are. The theological word is he's immutable. It means he's not fickle. He doesn't change. Number two, it's controlled in that it's not out of anger. And then we've already said three, it's judicial. And God would not be true to himself if he didn't enforce what he said. And so we're going to change the course and the trajectory here in the moment. I'm not, I don't want to bum everybody out because there's good news coming. But it, it, this gives us, verses 1 through 3, a picture of the before in which we all once walked, myself included, 
People are dead apart from Christ, not sick. People do their own agenda apart from Christ. And people, as a result of that rebellion, are children of wrath. And all of us, this describes all of us to one degree or another. You ready to change our course here? Paul does. Look at verse 4. Everybody, look at verse 4, either up on the screen or in your Bibles. These are two, listen to me, amazing words of hope. But God. But God. These are my wives. Carol, raise your hand. I know you've done it. Those are her two favorite words in all of Scripture. Because she understands the way she and we all were before Christ. But praise the Lord, there is a but God. I am so glad, folks, that God didn't stop at verse 3 and say something as he looked out over mankind. Man, these people are really messed up. Uh, I'm, I'm out. Oh, my, look at the time. I'm out of here. I am so glad there is a but God here. But God, folks, pursued us while we were dead spiritually. But God pursued us while we were in open rebellion against him. But God pursued us while we were living for ourselves and the enemy of our souls, the devil. But God pursued us, ready, and made us John 11, 43 and 44. Let's, let's read a physical description of what God does to us spiritually. Okay, John 11, 43 and 44. Let me find it. You know, I need better reading glasses, Gary. I think I'm going to go to Sam's Club and get them redone. <clears throat> 43 and 44. How many are familiar with the story of Lazarus? Right where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, it says, and he had these things, he cried out with a loud voice. This is Jesus, Lazarus. Lazarus had been dead for days. Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. His hands and his feet were bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Jesus makes dead people alive. There's a reason when you name the name of Christ that he didn't just take you home right there. Because we, you, have a message that we have a God who takes dead people lost in their sin under the wrath of God, breathes life into them, and makes them alive. And you're not allowed to keep that to yourself. I mean, right now, if, if your, we'll say, immediate family, the, 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 the fields are ripe for the harvest, came to know Christ, you guys would just have to get a much bigger place. I'm not even mentioning the people you work with. And when he makes us alive, he turns that wrath of God away. He frees us from our slavery to, the sin, to our sin, the world, and the grip of the enemy of our 
souls. <clears throat> Yet there are some who are in Christ who have been made spiritually alive. They are born again, but they're still wrapped in those stinky, smell-of-death, grave linen cloths. And you notice at the very end, he says, take those off. And yet sometimes believers go back and get those stinky smell of death and wrap ourselves back into them and walk according to the world when we have been freed from it. Oh, believer, if you have been set free, if but God describes your life, then put those things off. Forget what lies behind. Press forward to your upward call in Christ. And we're all in this category, right? Myself included. Oh, but let's put those off by the grace of God and run the race that he set before us unhindered. So what's God's motive in saving his people? <clears throat> Is there something good that he saw in us that moved him to a motion to make us alive? You've been in Romans. You know the answer to that one. No. So what was God motivated in reaching down and pulling us out of the darkness and placing us into his marvelous light. What was his motive? Well, Paul unpacks that for us here. Look at verse 4. He's motivated by mercy first. <clears throat> I want to make some distinctions between mercy and some other words in the passage. Do you know what mercy is? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Verse 1 and 3 tells us what we deserve from a judicial God. We deserve punishment apart from his presence, and yet he doesn't get, uh, give us what he deserves. He's motivated by his mercy. We deserve wrath. He gives us mercy. We deserve punishment. He gives us mercy. We deserve eternal separation. He gives us mercy. Aren't you glad? Remember when you were younger, when your parents gave you mercy, and you didn't get what you deserved? Like, I knew there were times I got it coming, oh boy. You know, I'd, I'd get caught stealing the ice cream sandwich out of the freezer, and somehow my mom was omniscient. She knew to go out and look around at my hiding space and find me eating the ice cream sandwich. i go, I'm in big trouble. But she sort of smiled and gave me mercy, right? One time, where I was in a, in, in a band when I was younger, and, and I was on the drums, and we had the guitars, and... I mean, we were playing way too loud, and my dad had a musket from Harper's Ferry over his prize bar with all of his prize bourbon and everything, and we were playing so loud, it shook the musket off the wall and smashed a lot of my dad's pride and joy. Oh, but I'm so glad my mom told him it was an earthquake. Oh, what mercy. What mercy. I think we finally did tell dad after he got saved. 
So God was motivated, folks, by his mercy. Look at verse 4. He's also motivated by his love for us. Love is like his overarching motive. He wasn't, again, motivated by something good in us, who we are, what we've done, what church we go to. But he was motivated because, look at verse 4, because of the great love in which he loved us. Ah, but God, mercy and love. Number four, by his grace. Look at five. I'm, I'm, I'm even out of the passage now. Let me go back. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, there it is again, he made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated. Not only that, the best is yet to come. And seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his, there it is again, grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So mercy now is not getting what we deserve. We've established that, right? But grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. You see the difference? Okay? Mercy, not getting what we deserve. Grace, lavishing on us what we don't deserve. We're loved. We're washed. We're forgiven. We're adopted. We're brought into the family of God. He gives us abundant life now, and the best is yet to come when he takes us home into the heavenly places. That's grace lavished on all who are in Christ. By grace, God forgives the sinner who repents. By grace, God turns uh, to him and washes their sin. By grace, he adopts them into his family. By grace, he gives them abundant life. By grace, he gives them eternal life. I remember my mom in the nursing home. She's gone on to be with the Lord eight years, brainstem stroke, bedbound. Could only move one half. And, and you know what's interesting? This woman had a, a, a big view of God. She told my brother her first day after her stroke, first day in the nursing home, she said, well, Steve, that's my brother. She, got, she said, I guess my prayers are now my hands and my feet. And every time I'd see her, and she suffered a lot in those eight years, I would always get very close to her, and I'd say, Hey, Mom, guess what? The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. That's all grace, folks. God's mercy and grace. Last one, or number five, the kindness of God. I want to talk about that just for a minute. Look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness to us who are in, who are in Christ Jesus. Next slide, Romans 2.4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I want to focus on the word kindness here just for a moment. I was at a RW Relational Wisdom 360 conference in Montana in August, and one of the keynote speakers, Rankin Wilborn, 
um, was teaching, um, and this was just one point in his message, but he had talked about in his previous church how he was hurt very, very deeply of people he was trying to help. In fact, I, 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 he said this, he goes, there's no ch- hurt like church hurt. And he was deeply, so deeply wounded um, that he went to see a biblical counselor. And that counselor um, was one day really challenging Rankin on some things and speaking the truth to him in love. And Rankin just stopped him and he said, you know, you are not being very kind to me right now. To which the counselor replied, he leaned right back and he goes, you don't even know what that word means. And and the counselor went on to explain to him the difference between being kind, and I'll contrast it to being nice. You see, being nice is really easy. It's noncommittal. It doesn't cost you anything. But kindness is very different from being nice. You see, because kindness will move toward the person, their messiness, whereas niceness will keep a distance and might even say, love ya, like that, and just go, let's get out of here. But kindness, Christ was kind, right? Christ moves in kindness towards us. We read that in our passage here in Ephesians chapter 2. He moves toward our mess. Niceness will keep its distance, won't want to get messy. We have a lot of nice people in churches today. What we need is kindness, where God moves towards us and our sin motivated by his love towards us in kindness. And Rankin said, as he went through that counseling, and the counseling was hard, He said, as I got through it and I worked through these things, he said, I am so glad that I had a kind counselor and not a nice one. And I just was writing this down. I go, I got to do a whole sermon on this. This is good. Because I can be nice. I can be really nice. I mean, I can hold the door at Sam's Club or Costco or actually there are electronic doors, wherever, the store. You know what? I am so glad you have kind pastors here who will speak the truth to you even sometimes when you don't want to hear it. And it's a real kind person who really loves you who will move towards you even when it's messy. And I can say this. These guys are kind. Jesus was kind. You want that kind of a pastor. I've been in ministry for uh, 25 plus years, and, and most of the pain and heartache that we have experienced is when we've tried, especially as a biblical counselor, tried to move toward people in kindness. I remember one time uh, when I lived in California when I was younger, Uh, I came up on a dog that had been run over. 
and it, it's bagged, but it was still alive. Real cute dog. And and as I got, I pulled my van aside, and I was going to go pick it up, and the, and the dog growled and tried to take a couple. And, and so here I'm trying to help that dog, but if I would have got close enough, I would have come back with, uh, or at least bit. I exaggerate sometimes. But when you have pastors and people in your life, hopefully your spouse that is willing to take a risk and move towards you in kindness to get help, that's love. And that's the love Christ had. It literally says here, he moves towards us in kindness. And sometimes kindness doesn't really feel that great. Oh, but we need to be kind like Christ was. So God was motivated by mercy and grace and love, and he moves towards our mess in kindness. And then he lavishes lavishes us with his immeasurable grace. Aren't you glad there's a but God, folks? In while we were yet sinners, Christ in his kindness died for us, removing the wrath of God, the wrath we deserved. So glad he didn't say that's way too messy. To go down there and die for these people, that just costs too much. But God. But God moves towards our mess. He came to earth, became a man, grew up, died a brutal death, all motivated by his love, grace, mercy, and kindness towards us. What about you? Is there a before and is there an after? If there is, he was kind towards you. Not because you were special or better than anyone else, but out of his own grace and love and his mercy. I want you to savor that. I love Paul David Tripp. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Therefore, it says in 2 Corinthians, I'm going to end with this, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I'm so thankful that there's a but God in Scripture. Let's pray.